This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Although, actually, I'm not here next week, so Patrick McGuire's going to be looking after you. So that will be nice. Right, coming up on today's episode, Cleo Watson used to work in the corridors of power. Now she's written a filthy book about politics. It's called Whips. She'll tell us why she's written it, what was it like babysitting Boris Johnson, and Mariana Frostop has voiced up some of the filthiest bits, so that's a real treat on the podcast today. In a moment, we'll have the columnist panel, but as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. When it comes to picking fruit and veg, we learned that Tory MP Tom Hunt can help out. I had four months in the fens sorting radishes. And we learned that Therese Coffey and Suella Bravman aren't close... Do you have the Home Secretary's phone number? Do I have her phone number? I probably do somewhere. Uh, why don't you message her then? We learned that TV wild man Steve Backshaw almost became an MP. I spent a good while working with Caroline Lucas of the Green Party and following her, her around uh, Parliament, learning about what she did. And it taught me that I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't work in politics. We learned that Dominic Raab won't stand at the next election, but he can't sail off into the sunset. The sea was actually closed. We learned that Tim Shipman owes me dinner. Yeah. If, if we get through six questions with that reference to Boris Johnson, um, I will buy a very expensive dinner. Winner, winner, Chorley dinner. There we go. Oh, well, I'm delighted, actually. It's time we had dinner. We learned that, confronted with Andrew Bridgen's nonsense, Penny Morden has the best put-downs. All of this disinformation was spread by the BBC itself. I think we should pause for a moment because... I think we may have just heard the first cuckoo of spring. We learned that in our focus group, some people still don't know who Keir Starmer is. I don't think I've ever heard of it. I don't know that politician, not going to lie. He's not memorable. Uh, I'm unsure. <laughs> we learned that Elon, even Elon Musk can suffer Times Radio-style technical malfunctions. Uh, tonight, I'm pleased to introduce two individuals who've done more to loosen the... All right, sorry about that. We, we've we got so many people here that I think we are we are uh, kind of melting the servers. And we learned that Rishi Sunak loves a dirty Jilly Cooper book. So all the kind of riders, rivals, polo, man and made riders. by jealous, the passion off, riders. all those. That's, uh, yes, oh, Prime that's Minister! Genuine. <laughs> but most importantly, 
you were listening earlier in the week, the main thing we learned this week, that in France, the A-team uh, TV theme had lyrics. Best thing I found out this week. It'll turn out the, uh, the lyrics are deeply offensive when we take it off air, but anyway... I like it. And that is what we learned this week. Right, now it's time for The Columnist No Indian Night today. So instead, it's these two. The Columnists on Times Radio. And for f- f- Friday must mean Night at the Marriott. But no Night at the Marriott today, unfortunately, because uh, Indian Night is not here. But we have got James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically battering away at my column. All right, James, there's no need to keep going on about that. How are you, James? Uh, still desperately trying to forget that I ever said those words. <laughs> so it's entirely in keeping with the slightly fruity nature of today's show, so it's fine. I, did, I never thought of myself as a fruity person, but evidently <laughs> it was lurking beneath the surface and <laughs> emanated. And uh, joining us uh, this, uh, today, Guardian columnist and writer Gabby Hinsliff. Are you a fruity person, Gabby? Absolutely. Obviously. <laughs> Nothing fruitier than coming on a radio show on a Friday morning. On a f- 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 Friday morning. Uh, yeah, it's a very, very important, important series program, this. Uh, right, uh, let's talk uh, House of Lords. Uh, Rishi Sunak has told Whitehall officials to give more knighthoods, damehoods and other honours to people living outside London and the South East. Is that a good idea, James? More northerners. Yeah, well, speaking as a northerner, albeit not a very good northerner, where, 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 where you're from? I'm from Newcastle, from Whitley Bay. Oh, yes, of course. Um, why, why, yeah, I, I could die. Unfortunately, of course. I was a pretentious teenager and uh, went to war on my Newcastle accent, and now it's completely gone. But yeah. it did once exist and was not unstrong, actually, at one point. Not unstrong? Yeah. Yeah. Did Had you... a little bit of a lilt. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite pleasant. Did you, did you, when you go out of an evening, do you not wear a coat? I actually do maintain a slightly jory attitude towards uh, towards dressing. Right. I mean, I'm not wondering. There was a thing about wandering around, um, not wearing any t-shirt or shirt at all, which I never went in for. But I would sometimes um, forswear a coat on a on a cold evening. <laughs> Did you use forswear a lot when you were out <laughs> on the streets of Newcastle? <laughs> it's probably why I came. It's probably why I came down south. Gabby, have you got any any claims to be being northern? <laughs> My dad's from Yorkshire, so yes, I'm statutory obliged to say that more northerners anywhere, obviously, it only improves it, in, including the including the House of Lords. Actually, if you made them all from Yorkshire, the advantage would be that you'd have a lot of shorter speeches. <laughs> Quite blunt, obviously. And I think a much uh, a much kind of uh, tighter attitude to the budget. You have lots of Yorkshiremen in the House of Lords. Oh, you're drifting into cultural stereotypes. Yes, no, mustn't do that. But as a northerner, I'm allowed to. <laughs> James has had a big squirt of hand sanitizer. Just, <laughs> just an interesting. What the just, just suddenly decided? Why? Well, because all this talk of being northerns making you feel dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Washing my hands, the whole business. What do you think about? What do you think more broadly about this idea of the sort of uh, meddling in the? Because the, the risk is now, uh, Gabby. The next time we get an honours list, everyone's going to go through and count up the northerners, and there's all to be well. These are all the pat on the head northern gongs. I, th- I mean, I, if I was being cynical, I'd say it was very good news for Red Wall Tory MPs who are about to lose their seats. <laughs> and they can presumably all hope to return in yeah, the Lords. S- Sir Jonathan Gullis. <laughs> sure, that hasn't crossed anyone's mind. The whole the whole cast of Emmerdale, they've all got damehoods um, down the... 
What's the name? I of- just want him to offer one to Andy Burnham to see what he would do because, on the other hand, one hand, there's nothing more southern in a feat than joining the Lords, obviously. So that would be completely out of kilter with the well, image. D- Andy body. Burnham doesn't know where Westminster is. You remember, Gabby? We could find out that way. <laughs> It's not. He doesn't go in for that sort of thing at all. Well, maybe he might have more luck if uh, Rishi Sunak phones him because he told me last week he hasn't spoken to Keir Starmer since February. Andy Burnham. They're not really on speaking terms, and he was very cross that people keep briefing against him. Um, who, can, who knows why that might be? Oh, no, it's funny though, isn't it? Uh, let's move on and talk about election promises. I'm struck, Gabby, that um, <laughs> the government seemed to be in this sort of uh, sort of death spiral, fag end uh, of, of a government where. They're just sort of admitting they're not going to do anything they said they were going to do. They've broken the promises on immigration. Uh, yesterday, Steve Barker, the health secretary, admitted the hospitals building programme to build 40 hospitals, which is never going to be 40 hospitals. Definitely isn't going to be 40 hospitals. Uh, they've also dropped the animal welfare bill. Uh, the plan to halve inflation doesn't appear to be going terribly well. Is this just sort of, um, without being rude, Gabby, you've, you, you've seen this electoral cycle a few times. Are we at the point now where... <laughs> very polite way of saying you're very old. <laughs> you, know, you, oh, you and I used to share an office, Gabby. I remember Deep. it well, yeah. Uh, um, and actually, that was probably at the same point, the sort of fag-endy end of, of New Labour, where they just sort of can't really do anything. It is the, It is... There is a certain sort of it's all over, but the washing up feeling um, now, it has to be said, you know, and that kind of normally this sort of the last year, last year and a half is a sort of frenzy of activity because you've got legislation you've got to get through, things you've got to get ticked off that you said you were going to do in the manifesto. But there's a sort of, I don't know, feeling of slight helplessness about about this government now. It's not just as well this this term. I was trying to think the other day for 13 years in power, how have the Conservatives changed the country? You know, how is it a transformatively different place and what and all you hear is conservatives complaining it's not conservative enough you know the blob has taken over everything and and you know the country's full of woke karate and it's not the feeling that they've stamped their mark on the country you don't get that apart from brexit you know what else has changed what what's the great legacy from all those conservative governments and the trouble with hey, marriage but, phonics for reading i'm i'm a bit bit struggling i know but that. then i mean in those both of those examples are like 10 years old um, yeah, exactly. You know, Neither of them are this government. If they'd have been thrown out in 2015, they'd have still had those things to, to point out. And the trouble with Brexit, James, is that the people who wanted Brexit say it hasn't been done properly, and the people who didn't want Brexit say it's been a disaster. So it's not even like that's a... Yeah, it's not anything to, to point to and go, what a magnificent thing that we've done. It all yeah. went so well. Yeah, it does, it does sort of... I mean, I think part of it also is this kind of feeling of since Brexit, you know, these kind of rolling crises of dealing with Brexit, trying to get Brexit through, pandemic... Um, the obvious problem of Liz Truss and sort of the whole, you know, it's all been sort of very... Imagine, all... imagine that forevermore she's going to be in that list. Yeah, things that went wrong with the country. <laughs> Brexit, pandemic, Liz Truss. <laughs> Was Liz Truss the worst of those three? Um, and yeah, and I think, I mean, that's a kind of exhausting thing for any kind of, you know, sitting government to go through is just dealing with those crises. And Rishi Sunak was, I think, obviously elected to just kind of calm everything down, not to kind of transform the country. And maybe that's part of it too, that, you know doing nothing is kind of now seems pre- feels preferable to actively screwing things up maybe that's the kind of maybe that's a the calm mood. drift towards yeah it's actually better than when they actually start doing stuff and then it all seemed to be going horribly wrong and then the flip side of that Gabby it, it, it's unusual to then have an opposition which isn't exactly full of vim and vigor I mean it, it putting aside you know polls and all that sort of stuff but at this point in previous electoral cycles, whether it was David Cameron or Tony Blair, even to some extent probably Margaret Thatcher, a sort of sense of, 
you know, being the future, being full of ideas and being talked about. And it, it, of all Keir Starmer's many strengths, that's sort of not where quite where he is. I think they're trying to create a sense of purpose and momentum. And there's lots of, you know, I was just looking the other day at the clips of sort of Rachel Reeves in, was it Washington? She's been to, you know, there's a lot of purposeful striding about going on by shadow cabinet <laughs> ministers, kind of trying to look like government and waiting, you know, those kind of, those kind of clips. But I just, I think, to be honest, the mood both country and in government is slightly exhausted. You know, yeah. it's slightly, we've all just been through an awful lot in the last few years. And there's a kind of becalmed feeling almost that, you know, just kind of one more one more heave um, and there'll be a change of government probably. But I wouldn't, wouldn't say anyone's sort of wildly excited about that. I wonder whether it's partly, and I, my big complaint for long, since basically since Brexit, has been that people have been too into politics. They're actually, the whole point of politics was that we were supposed to worry about it in between elections and normal people could get on and, you know, and the fact that everyone's been radicalised, whether it's by Brexit or COVID or the culture wars or Boris Johnson, um, that actually people are weary of even thinking about politics. And so they're sort of weary of Keir Starmer before they even know who he is. And then as soon as they do, they're weary of him, rather than sort of waking up six months out from the election and say, oh, this is quite interesting, an interesting new new chap. I, complete, I, I completely agree with that. And I think people probably, are we not just done with enthusiasts? You know, the last, the last people who've been enthusiastic in politics just seem to be enthusiastic in a terrible direction. And I think, you know, because... Even if there was, sort, you know, even if you had sort of Tony Blair coming along and promising to change everything and, you know, give us cool Britannia and make Britain a kind of new place, would anyone even want that? Do we just not want to be left alone well, a little it's bit? It's an interesting thought because, you know, with Jeremy Corbyn, actually the weird cult around him became a turn-off. Yeah. Uh, the same is true of Liz Truss and the, the sort of tax-cutting headbangers. All these slightly frightening dynamic people who I yeah. think maybe the public is just a bit like... That's interesting. Don't, anti, don't be dynamic. Keir time is the anti-enthusiasm. Yeah, no enthusiasm is good. Enthusiasm has taken us to some very alarming places recently. Yeah, like keep it nice and calm. Now, um, Gabby, I think I can hear Tweety Birds behind you. Is that the, the Tweety Birds of Oxfordshire? You can. You can hear birdsong. Um, and probably children in the playing school playing next door as well, which is slightly less, um, slightly less melodious. But anyway, um, I am out in the wilds of nowhere, about to be joined by... Um, by a celebrity guest, by the sounds of things. Yeah, so if we listen really carefully, can we hear um, Boris Johnson calling his children in from the garden? I really hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I am I am um, not a million miles away in an equally sleepy village from the one um, Boris Johnson's just moved into. So I am a veteran. If he wants to, to, you know, ask me for advice on blending in, I'm very happy to give it to someone else who also moved out of London. Yeah. So Although we didn't buy a nine-bedroom mansion with a moat, I must confess. So there's Boris Johnson bought a £3.8 million Brightwell Manor in a village called Brightwell Come Sotwell. You know it's a posh village when it's got a hyphenated cub in the middle like God, that. A hyphenated, yeah. a hyphenated village with yeah. cum in the it's middle. It's a lovely <laughs> village. got our rescue cat from Brightwell Come Sotwell. Did you? From a lovely you lady. You couldn't afford to live there yourself, the but you bought a cat. No, <laughs> <laughs> just got the cat. As long as, yeah, well, that's true. Carrie could make friends, but Carrie's very keen on rescue animals. Just, you know, suggesting a friendship there. Well, yes. So they've got a nine-bedroom grade two listed property so that all the children could come and stay. It's got a three-sided moat. I'm confused about how a three-sided moat works. Yeah, it does feel like uh, they missed... There's a floor. Yeah, in you go, you go in the back. Say, yeah, maybe I wouldn't say I'm a moat expert, but maybe the th what, it depends what's on the side that doesn't have a moat. Maybe it's got, I don't know, a pit full of boiling coals or something. Mm, I bet it is that. I <laughs> Big bet it drawbridge, is that. maybe. So what's your advice to Boyce Johnson if he does want to blend in to the uh, the posh bits of Oxfordshire? 
Well, he obviously has to, in a village, you have to join in and do things. And the more boring the things are and the more people actually in the village don't want to do them, the better. So you have to join like the most boring committee you can find. (laughs) Something to do with like verges or, you know, kind of organizing something that nobody wants to do. Definitely do that. Um, They've done the obvious thing, which is get a dog, because then you can talk to everyone about your dog. Um, And don't arrive with a circus load of armed policemen and journalists and (laughs) annoying people who upset your neighbours. That's probably the main one. I think I think um, volunteering to do something which involves putting on a high vis vest and standing in a gateway Mm. for a whole day. Yeah. Would you be reassured if Boris Johnson wearing a high vis vest turned up outside your house to stand in your gateway? I think you'd be alarmed. (laughs) But that's the sort of thing. Join the parish council. That would help. That would be good. Bring a lot of expertise. Yeah. Before you knew it, though, there'd be there'd be an inquiry launched into what, <laughs> what he did, what he knew before making the decision on the bridal way. You'd find that your village would be brexiting or something. Yeah, it turned You'd out a man who produces uh, kissing gates uh, paid for him to go on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would be safer not to. What he could, do, if he wants to join in in Oxfordshire, particularly, he could take up Aunt Sally. Which is a game that I don't think, not sure exists. Anywhere. Oh, okay, fine. Not, it's not a person. It's not a woman. It's not a woman. Everyone relax. <laughs> no, I think he's been, like, he's been around that block a couple of times before. Been so around that. I wouldn't, on, wouldn't advise that. What is Definitely Aunt Sally? Wouldn't advise that. Um, Aunt Sally is a game that I, I, only people in Oxfordshire play, as far as I can tell. And you play it in a pub, and it's like, it's, I'm not making it sound great, but basically there's like a ball on a stick at the end of the garden, and you throw sticks at it. It's not what I would call a sophisticated game, but it's very popular. It's very Oxfordshire. And it's kind of, you know, if you've been a veteran of a number of Tory leadership contests, there's probably a similar kind of, you know, competitive ethos, I would say. I'm looking at it now. I like I like, I like, like a regional pub game. Because nobody really plays Skittles outside the West Country, do they? Or cheese mm. rolling. Yeah. That's not really a pub. That's like a once, once a year thing. People don't do that. But that's sort of regional. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Skittles. Have you ever played Skittles? No, but a proper, um, a proper sort of coming like rite of passage for a teenager in Somerset was sticking up, which meant that you had to go and stand at the bottom of the skit alley and try and dodge the balls. And then you had to put the skittles back up again. There was going to be. A, I remember you promised me a Times Radio outing to play temp and bowling. Yeah, which I'm very sad. Oh, that's transpired. true. Yeah, we should we should organise. Feel offended. That. Northern I mean, games happening without me. What about a northern game? You must have a northern game from the from from your nights out in Newcastle where you top off. Yeah, I never really. Participated kicking in the door of Greg's. No one ever invited me. (laughs) (laughs) I literally couldn't think of anything less likely to happen. Now, James, somebody's emailed in with a question for you. As it's Friday, James is on. He's the reader of books. Yes. I'm off on holiday and I'm thinking of giving Jilly Cooper a go as promoted by Rishi Sunak. Can you ask James which one should I read? Tar Darren. Well, with my extensive knowledge of Jilly Cooper's books and indeed the genre of the bonkbuster, which obviously. There's nothing I like more than settling down with it. I've never read any Jilly Cooper no. novel, I'm afraid. No. Um, Riders is the famous one, isn't Riders it? is the famous one. With the one. bottom on the cover that everybody yeah, sort the, of... Yeah, the wishes you know. Gabby, are you, a, are you a fan of Jilly Cooper? I've read all the Jilly Cooper. Oh, well, there you are. What would I mean, you recommend to the same, to be honest. Any, any Jilly Cooper is fine. You get the same, basically, horses, posh people and shagging. Fine. Lovely. Right, go on then, let's do this. <laughs> What is your favourite railway station? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to bring it to the broadcaster and historian Tim Dunn is here. And Tim, you, you're organising the World Cup of stations. I didn't organise it. You're I'm, not organising it. You're just enthusiastically I've been, I've been, backing it. I've been the ringmaster. I've been allowed to kind of look after it on social media uh, because the guys running it, the Community Rail across the UK, said, look after it for us. This is bonkers. 
and there is genuinely a bonkers Twitter thing going on right now. So people pe- voting out, out there, for, uh, millions of people are voting for their favourite station on Twitter. Now, so today it's been running like all week, hasn't it? It has, it yeah, has. it's been running all week. We had semi-finals. I'm not sure my local station even was Fleet ever in it. It wasn't. No, I, no. I didn't nominate that one this year. What's, the, what's the what's the criteria? It's, it's got to be run by volunteers or have a massive volunteer oh, okay. input. So someone who's doing nice things with, with hanging baskets or bringing in schools, talk about safety, yeah. or perhaps restoring a building, do something lovely with it, so bring a bit, a bit extra, a bit more. So what's currently... Who who are in the final? Incredibly, Denmark Hill. I never thought you'd have Denmark Hill as a finalist for the World Cup of Stations. It's there a, you go. It's also South East London. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I used to go through there when I lived in East, East the, Dulwich. The guys there, the Campbell Society have built a huge art gallery around it and they've turned the whole thing there. They're looking at building a, a vineyard along the back of it as well, Ooh. which is quite exciting if you like wine. Uh, there's Leamington Spa, the volunteers there, a big garden up there as well. And then also the guys at Weems Bay up in Scotland have been doing like secondhand bookshops. They've built a bar and a cafe. And it's just lovely. So I've got I've just retweeted it. So currently, but uh, how do you pronounce it? Wemis. Oh, Weems Bay. Weems Bay. I've, I've been instructed on this. It's definitely Weems, Weems Bay. Bay. Is is well ahead. We've got thirteen hours left to vote. Um, James, favourite railway station? Uh, I'm going to be true to my northern roots and nominate Tynemouth Station up in Newcastle on oh. the Metro line. Gorgeous wrought iron Victorian station with a, a market in it on a Saturday and every month, once every month, a book fair. Oh, very nice. Gabby, do you have a favourite railway station? Doesn't everyone? I'm going, I'm staying Oxfordshire and I say Charlbury, which is like, it's like going onto the set of the railway children. It's like the railway station that time forgot. It's a little old fashioned office and it's kind of single track and kind of. Nice. Yeah, very, very nice and old fashioned. And I used to bump into Jack Straw on the platform quite a lot, which I realised wouldn't be a bonus for a lot of people, but was quite handy in my line of work. His wife used to have a house nearby, so yes. Oh, very nice. Uh, Timmy, you allowed to have a favourite? Of course I can. I guess Oakhampton in Devon. Oh. Because it opened up after 40 years again, the year before last, uh, by volunteers. They campaigned 40 years after beaching. Finally, uh, we got some funding for it. Reopened it last year, and it is reopened, and the double the number of passengers than expected turned up over the course of the year. So it is doing storming good stuff for Dartmoor. I just feel I haven't asked all of you. I can't. I, I probably need to go for a Somerset. I'll, I'll go Bishop's Lydiard. Oh, the steam one. Which is a steam, old steam line. You can go down to Minehead on the train. And we're not allowed to pick big, like St Pancras. Well, if things like a, that. I'm the, not for this one, because we've got yeah. 48 stations in the, in, the, in the heats, and we're down to the final three. Uh, so, yeah, but I did have, and Denmark Hill was the biggest one we had. Oh, no, we had Coventry. Coventry was in there, and that's a big station. That doesn't sound like that should be in there. Yeah, I was in Coventry Station recently and I would not be nominating that for... (laughs) James, why did you take against it? It seemed ugly. (laughs) I uh, I met the architect. He's 98 years old now. Oh, God. He built it the same time he built the the Coventry Cathedral, Basil Spence. And they built that station and it is done in the most spectacular materials. And it is beautiful. Is not, it? Not, oh, there's a big red bit, the new bit. Not a fan of that. The old bit, the 60s bit, gorgeous modernism. Ooh, Philip's been in touch. Says, isn't the chap in charge the station master rather than the ringmaster? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. You've, good you, point. You're I've, now I've, the station I've... master, Tim. Oh. And so how long have people got to vote? They've got till midnight tonight. They can do it on Twitter. Uh, and like, then what will happen after that? Then tomorrow. Nothing. Nothing at all, no. Tomorrow morning, <laughs> tomorrow morning we're going to find out who wins it. And then week after next, we're going to present the awards to the volunteers who are worthy. Lovely. Oh. Fabulous. Um, we were also talking about uh, pub games and Aunt Sally, Gabby. Um, Philip's been in touch saying, I live in York, Oxfordshire, and I play Aunt Sally. A few summers ago, I'd spent too long at the bar, went for my go at Aunt Sally, was somewhat off target, and launched my stick into the beer tent and hit the vicar. 
Yeah, don't do that if you want to make friends, Boris Johnson. <laughs> that, that won't work. Gabby Hinsliff and James Barrett then. Of course, you can read James every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, we get steamy with Cleo Watson's Dirty Book. Alison Hammond there getting very excited about Rishi Sunak on uh, uh, this morning, yesterday, confirming he does love Jilly Cooper's racy novels set in the world of horse racing. But we don't yet know if he's read a new book, which has variously been described as a bonk buster or bodice ripper, set in and around Westminster, Downing Street and Chequers. It's called Whips. And it's been written by the former nematode advisor, Cleo Watson. And she joins me now. Morning. Thanks for having me on. No, it's good to have you here. Um, uh, we, should explain, let's, we should explain, first of all, what you used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were a political advisor for Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. That's and right. then you were Deputy Chief of Staff for Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. But it's right, right the way back. You also worked on Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. Yeah, that's right. I, w- I got hired as an intern. And... I was slightly mystified that I'd been able to do it. I was studying over there at the time and you were able to get kind of course credit if you were able to do relevant work experience. And they immediately put me onto their um, finance team, which essentially involved ringing up wealthy sort of southern donors obviously with a bit of a money penny accent <laughs> and saying oh um hello would you like to give us two hundred thousand dollars and then and like, they, what uh, for yard signs um and then you say oh no for um facebook advertising um and yeah that that's how it all does it work on. oh well it seemed to apparently it's a big thing in the states that if you have um a kind of english assistant then that shows that you've really reached the, reached the upper... Really? Upper, yeah. 
doesn't come out doesn't come out in the West Wing, though, does it? And when you because when people say oh, I've worked on so and so's campaign, do, I mean, did you ever get to see Obama? Did you ever? Yeah, I did. Yeah, a couple of times. Um, and Michelle, one of the things that actually amazed me, and I think it just shows either the skill of these people and, and the kind of memory that they have, or the ability to fake it but I I met him again at COP26 in Glasgow in 2021 and he allegedly remembered me and came over and said hi and asked how I was doing but I don't know if that was just like really smoothly done but obviously showed my hand and I thought I'm never going to wash it again (laughs) (laughs) and then and then explain then your your first job in politics here was it on the leave campaign it was yeah during the during the EU referendum and how did that how did that come about um, so I, I've known Dominic Cummings for quite a long time and we kind of bumped into each other somewhere and I was I was wondering what to do and he said, there's going to be, it's sort of summer 2015, so just after that general election, he said yeah. there's going to be a referendum, where do you stand on the EU? If you're interested in campaigning, you should, I think you should come on the Leave campaign, which is the one I'll be running because, you know, we're kind of the underdogs, and you, you'll have a, like a better seat at the table, it'll be really interesting. But essentially, you'll have to come on and then make my coffee and and do my diary to begin with, which is what I did. And were you? Did you did you support Leave? Or were you there for the sort of campaigning fun of the ride? I mean, to be honest, um, it sounds like I was some kind of gun for hire. But I was about twenty four, twenty five at the time. I hadn't given EU membership a huge amount of thought. Yeah. And truthfully, I didn't really mind either way I don't feel kind of especially you must be the only person in Britain now do you still feel the same uh, <laughs> I dare, I mean, there was a, there was a weird feeling when we won where I thought oh my gosh we, we won like the first campaign I've ever worked on and then oh my god what what have we done what does this mean um, and I still you know I think lots of people probably reassessing how they feel about Brexit but altogether I, I feel like it was quite an important moment at the time and something very special to work on. So the first campaign you work on, a huge success. Then you went to work for Theresa May on a 2017 election campaign. Which she technically won, so... Which is why I used the phrase huge success. (laughs) How was that? Um, It was... It was... It was challenging. I mean, compared to the 2019 general election, you really, you really get these senses in these in these kind of organisations and buildings of how things are going, where you can almost like feel the t- temperature, and it just, it just felt flat there pretty much the whole way through. Do you think it's that thing of Theresa May was a better prime minister and Boris Johnson's a better campaigner, and they're not necessarily the same? set of skills yeah I think that's probably true and it's extremely difficult to have the full package to you know to to be able to kind of communicate and get your ideas across but also to actually have those ideas we should probably mention the fact that your book Mm. features a female prime minister weakened by plotting taking a rebellious cabinet to checkers to try to persuade them to vote for for what she calls her China China free trade deal Mm -hmm. that does all sound quite Theresa Mayy yeah, I suppose it does. Um, but we, <laughs> as, if you, as if you'd well, never thought of that before. <laughs> well, we've not had many women PMs, yeah. have we? So I, it felt quite important for me to write in a woman just because my experience of working for her anyway is that I think they get especially bad treatment, you know, very sexist briefing against her happened quite a lot of the time I remember she was going to a 1922 committee meeting and she was informed via the papers in advance to bring her own noose um and I think it's something I was interested in exploring is the experience of 
women politicians. So let, let's pause and uh, talk, have a little bit from the book. Oh, we spared no expense in, <laughs> in the productions today. We've got one of the UK's most expensive voiceover artists really? to voice it up for you. Yes, uh, uh, Mariana Foster, we haven't paid anything. <laughs> Normally, should be expensive. This is our very own Mariana Foster reading one of the few, I mean, I was going to say broadcastable bits, I'm still not sure. This is Mariana Foster reading from Whips. This is great. I feel like I've got an eco-skeleton on to protect me, Jess points at his thigh burns. Ed feels his face get warmer under the helmet. Jess starts the engine and pushes back a little in the saddle. As soon as they rattle off down the road, Ed knows he's made a terrible mistake. His groin is pressed hard against Jess's leather-clad behind, and the vibrations of the engine and the bumps in the road mean he's constantly grinding up against her. The trouble is, he can't even push himself further back on the saddle or relax his grip because he's terrified of falling off as they whip through the busy morning traffic. All he can think, with his eyes tight shut in the sweaty heat of his helmet is please don't get an erection please don't get an erection please don't get an erection when they finally climb off the bike he does his best to avoid making eye contact with Jess but he can feel her looking at him intently the sweat on his back grows cold Clearly, slightly trying to avoid making eye oh contact with God, me oh my god that was excruciating <laughs> now um, they've put in the script for me here Cleo mm. what's going on there then mm. I think I think it's quite clear <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if this is one of your experiences, but it's a very senior journalist being given a yes. lift by um, a new, much younger member of the lobby. I can honestly tell you that's never happened. <laughs> well, you're live on air, so, yeah. so, so you heard, heard it here first. Um, and essentially, this is, so she's just started working for him. She's giving him a lift over to Parliament. He kind of thinks he has the upper hand and foolishly has accepted a lift from her on her motorbike and... Obviously, he's left a bit red-faced and she walks away thinking, hmm, I think maybe I've got the upper hand on you now. And is it, was it important for you writing this book, in all seriousness? Like you talked about you know, Theresa May and her experience as a female prime minister, mm. but the role, the, the, the role of women in, in politics and the way that they're treated? Yes, definitely. I mean, the, a, a, like a large theme of this book is about women coming out on top and I think pretty much every woman character in it ends up winning one way or another. It's perhaps how you know it's a work of fiction. But, I, um, but yeah, I really wanted to have a bit of a celebration of, of yeah, the women winning for once. And, and how um, did you, we'll talk a bit about you both for Boris Johnson in particular, but just in all your time in Westminster, were you on the receiving end of the stuff that you've covered in the book? No, I wasn't. I mean, nothing um, nothing kind of serious. Obviously, there's there's been a lot of appalling reports of mm. serious kind of sexual assault and harassment and I actually very specifically didn't want to write about that because it obviously requires very sensitive handling mm. and having not experienced it myself yeah. I just didn't want to get it wrong and we've just not worked out what to do about it in non-fiction yet um, but y you have your fair, fair share of like, oh you're really tall original or, uh, <laughs> or um oh you look really nice when you wear makeup or just people getting maybe a little bit handsy at party conferences and stuff like that but nothing I felt particularly um uncomfortable dealing with anyway and you just slightly touched on a bit before with when you went to work for Dominic uh Cummings is was there always a sort of assumption that you were going to get the tea I mean you were the deputy chief, chief of staff in Downing Street um so so 
Not particularly, although my, my first day working um, in Johnson's team, we were kind of milling around outside the cabinet room ahead of our first meeting and I was kind of introducing myself to people I didn't know and there was a particular staffer who'd also joined and, and I introduced myself and he went, oh yeah, okay, hi, nice to meet you. So I looked over my shoulder and said, oh, um, can you get me a cup of coffee, by the way? And I, and I said, sure. And then we went into the room, sat down, meeting starts, Boris addresses his first question to me and you saw this guy thinking, oh no, <laughs> I totally misread this one. So um, so as much as you kind of experience it, to yeah. be honest, you get to kind of push back where you can. And, and, and ultimately you, get, you, you, you come out on top because in the meeting you were the one who got exactly. yeah, addressed by the Prime Minister. Let's go back to the book. Oh God. Uh, so this is, this is a bit more, this is, this is now set in Portcullis House where lots of MPs have their offices. Clarissa Courtney arches her back against the leather sofa in her husband's parliamentary office, but doesn't take her eyes off the TV screen. She hasn't felt this satisfied in ages. She grudgingly has to admit that the PM looks good. All traces of the awkward Hillary Clinton head girl have disappeared. Clarissa had expected to see a resigned, frigid victim mope out of the front door. She clearly underestimated this woman. I'm more humble in victory than I thought, she smiles to herself. Clarissa watches the PM's neon lips mouth, my resignation. Maybe I should look at a colour like that for when I stand outside Eric's first day, Clarissa thinks. It really pops against the black bricks of Downing Street. A shiver of delight runs through her as she casts her eye at the emerald green Catherine Walker coat hanging on the back of the door. Clarissa needs to change into it soon, to stand dutifully beside Courtney as he announces his intention to run in the leadership contest. She gasps at the thought. You like that, baby? asks Courtney, raising his head from between her thighs. Cleo, I don't know where you're wincing. Oh you my wrote God, this. this is torture. I think having to hear it read back, it's like, you know, it's like reading your sort of childhood diary. Well, Mariano enjoyed it so much. I think she recorded the whole book. So I'm if, so if you impressed. haven't done the audio book yet. I'm, you... did, how many takes did it take her? Because I think she, there was a, I think there was a lot of hot, lot of cool water. <laughs> throw a bucket of water over at the end. If you done, if you you haven't read the audio book, then. I assume there is an audio no, book. No, no, there is an audio book, but someone else has done it because it would have taken it would have taken days if because I'd just giggle all the way through, I think. Now I've I mean I've worked in Westminster now for uh, 18, 19 years. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it feels like a very sexy place. There's a lot of people with bad breath and bad suits and hanging about and eating crap food. How have you managed to make politics sound so much sexier than it really feels. Well, I'm not sure that I have. I think there's quite an important distinction about writing about sex and writing about sort of intimacy. And that's one of the things, incidentally, I think Julie Cooper does really well. Mm. And this is very firmly kind of taking you into the... Taking you in front of the TV when you're watching something embarrassing with your parents and you just feel a little bit cringy. Like, I want people to feel in on the joke a little bit. Um, that, you know, there is some sex in Westminster and... I think quite often um, kind of TV and books and so on make all sex very sexy and it isn't necessarily. It's actually pretty embarrassing for a lot of us. And talking about Jenny Cooper, mm. did you know that Rishi Sunak was a big fan? So I read that recently and I, I couldn't agree with him more. I think I think if he should put his money where his mouth is and um, uh, get, get her on the damehood list. Oh, that's a good idea. She's brought a lot yeah. of pleasure to a lot of people. <laughs> Have you sent him a copy of your book? No, I haven't, but... You but, should. Uh, yeah, maybe I will. I don't want to, you know... Like I don't want to distract him from the day job. <laughs> Is it a bonkbuster? 
Uh, I How are you describing it? We keep using foremost. steamy, racy, sexy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I would call it a sort of satirical uh, work of fiction about kind of politics and friendship. But obviously, I mean, there's like sex on page two. So, you yeah. know. About the sex before you even get there's a, there's, there's some extraordinary things we can't uh, repeat on the radio in the prologue before you even get to chapter one. <laughs> yes, that's true. But it's just, it's just to like ease you in, wait yes, a whistle. So to speak. <laughs> See now, now everything you say sounds like I'm going to do anything. Right, let's talk about let's talk about your your previous day job working mm-hmm. in Downing Street for Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. You were his deputy chief of staff, even though there wasn't actually a chief of staff, which I think tells you quite a lot <laughs> about Boris the organisation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, at, explain exactly what your job was. What did you do during the course of the day? Because you'd think deputy chief of staff, you're, you know, it's like the West Wing, and you're charging around corridors and mm-hmm. ordering around great offices of state. Yeah, so the the bulk of it was just trying to keep the show on the road day to day. So deciding kind of who should be in what meetings, where they should happen, particularly with COVID, obviously a lot of people had to zoom in and that mm. kind of thing to keep them um, s- secure. And um, w- I mean, a lot of it really was, and again, this is particularly with COVID in mind, trying to separate what needed to happen kind of day-to-day who was taking care of like the data dashboard who was working on vaccines and so forth who was thinking about what needed to be said at the press conference later and then just new incoming stuff that needed to be dealt with whether it was kind of school exams so it was almost like being a little um uh a, a, a kind of offshoot spot to kind of put the right people onto the right tasks so it's it's pretty administrative to be honest i wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm a massive policy brain or data person or comms person, but I was quite good at kind of allocating tasks, which is pretty much what I do at home. (laughs) (laughs) And you basically ended up nannying Boris Johnson when he caught COVID. Yeah, exactly. I mean, particularly the... He he was quite a bad patient. He was not ideal. Um, But I think particularly when he was recovering, um, he'd obviously been hit by it very, very hard. And... This, the state isn't necessarily set up to deal with just a fundamentally unwell prime minister. And so kind of thinking about what he was eating, whether he was getting some rest and what his schedule was doing, certainly in the early stages of him coming out of it felt quite important. But partly that's because, you know, again, because this is the way the state is set up, he's the ultimate decision maker mm. on a lot of things. So you need to have him best set up so that everybody else can get on with their jobs. And in doing that, tell us about the iPads. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't incredibly involved with the iPads, but he's, I would not say he's particularly tech literate. Yeah. Um, so he, when he would be, a few times he was kind of pinged, so he was isolating, but he obviously was joining meetings via Zoom. Um, but he quite often hit the wrong button or halfway through kind of, swipe it off so we had to kind of line up iPads to slip under the door um, <laughs> so he could get onto the next one all ready to go. And then he kept coming out and you had to sort of barricade him in. Yes, yes. He wasn't, he's just, he likes to see what people are up to. I wonder whether this kind of dates back to being in newspapers and so on and kind of, you know, roaming around and, and seeing what's happening. See that little bit here at News UK. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, he, 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 he essentially needed to be he, he he just couldn't I couldn't keep the door open or or indeed kind of close him in because I needed to see what he was up to so he put these chairs across like, um, a, like a sort of a child stair gate exactly keep him locked in yeah and it, it totally worked so hearing those stories it's perhaps not the greatest surprise that some rules were broken in 
in Downing Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your, because when you brought you there, I think, did you organise the, the birthday party which didn't even have a cake? Well, I was asked to organise it. Yeah. But yeah, I was at that event and I, you know, uh, was fined for it and I, you know, couldn't regret it more and I wish I could take it all back and I apologise for it. Um, uh, but I, I do think, I mean, it's it's really difficult, again, I suppose, a, a year on from the Sue Gray all report that, yeah. where... It must have felt like for particularly some of the families who've lost, you know, friends mm-hmm. to, friends and family members to COVID and certainly the doctors and nurses who are working in A&E to feel like they kind of got some questions answered on what was going on in yeah. Downing Street. And then this week to hear that potentially there's there's another lie on top of a lie, obviously... Boris Johnson can the answer stuff with what happening at Chequers. Were you involved exactly. in any of that? The, no, the, I wasn't. What was going on at Chequers? I, didn't, I didn't know about that, any of that. So it's, it's come as a surprise to me. But I think what is so... It must be so difficult for those people to kind of come to terms with, yeah. actually, is this going to be opened up all over again? But also for, you know, a lot of the officials who are working in Downing Street, it feels like their time there has been sort of defined now by Partygate. And the, they were working incredibly hard. They're really bright young people and they were doing you know nothing compared to being in the front line in a hospital but still pretty harrowing stuff you know where we I remember days when we were looking at potential sites for mass graves and looking at renting ice rinks to use as morgues and you know really trying to work out how we could keep pregnant women safe going in to give birth but but also potentially they'd have to do it alone and um, I really hope that this eventual COVID inquiry once it gets going, and obviously that's looking a bit confused as well at the moment, will try and kind of address what they were doing so that lots of these families and and the public in general get a better picture of what people were doing with their time and it wasn't all partying. Do you think... I do think the the, the birthday party without the cake and the cabinet was one thing. When we look at what happened the night before Prince Philip's funeral... Uh, and some of the other, you know, clear, you know, in the the Grey's report talks about wine up the walls and mm. all that sort of stuff. Was there a cultural problem in Danny? And having worked actually for Theresa May and then Boris Johnson, do you think the same thing would have happened if Theresa May had been like the least party party person you could think of? Do you think it would have happened with a different? Is it something about? Boris Johnson, the way he behaves, the sort of people he surrounds himself with? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I didn't know about those events until we read about them, in the, you know, once it all came out. But I, I definitely think it's the case that a culture is set from the top mm. and I don't think this stuff would have happened under Theresa May. And whether people feel like they have a kind of boss who either kind of implicitly gives permission or in fact encourages um is something that obviously needs some like psychological examination but um i would have been extremely surprised had this kind of thing happened under Theresa may and what do you think when i say the name boris johnson Mm. what what do you think now (laughs) i think um gosh he gets still gets a lot of oxygen, doesn't he? But I mean, I've I've obviously had I, I I don't know how much your listeners know about this, but I had a slightly weird end to my time working with him, where um, I still to this day don't quite know if I was fired or if I or if I resigned. Which uh, so, he, in, so he'd fired Dominic Cummings. Yeah, well, uh, even that ended on Dominic like weird, Cummings quite friendly had terms. Left. Yes, but despite that, you were essentially Dominic Cummings' right hand woman. You stayed. But, yeah. but Boris Johnson just couldn't cope with the you still being around. I mean, 
I, d- I don't quite know what he was <laughs> thinking, but like I said, it became pretty clear yeah. that that it was going to be like an old lamp. Yeah, he what he was trying to say was it. Fe- it's like Dominic and I have divorced, and we're doing up our furniture, and you're um, this like old lamp that's left over and I didn't know what to do with it which made me feel amazing um, I think one of the things that really helped was so natural charm yeah yeah exactly ladies, just, uh, so I just well. don't know how he gets all these girls um, <laughs> uh, one of the things that I actually found quite helpful was when I read some of the Anthony Selden extracts in the Sunday Times yeah. and um, he was he was sort of explaining this conversation that Sajid Javid had with Boris Johnson when um when Sad- Boris was basically saying, you can stay as chancellor, but you can't keep your special advisors. Yeah. And Sajid said, no, I won't do that. And Boris said, they're just people. And I, I, I suddenly thought, oh, okay, I was just people. Makes and it's sense. actually kind of helpful in a way to, it helps you not take it as personally. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make you feel amazing, obviously, <laughs> but you do but think... But it wasn't just about you. Well, you think, cool, I can just go off and write my book now and, and I feel much more peaceful about <laughs> it. <laughs> do you think it'll come back? Would you not... How would you feel if you woke up one morning and Boris Johnson was Prime Minister again? Um, I wouldn't feel great, I must say. I I don't think um, it would be a brilliant thing for the country, but obviously that's not up to me. Um, I would just be very surprised about it. <laughs> but um, And who knows if he really wants to either, yeah, yeah. but it feels very unlikely to me that, you know, Particularly if he if he can't explain away these new allegations yeah. that um, people would necessarily want him back. Well, the, the latest allegations are about what went on at Checkers. Mm. So handily, we've got uh, a final extract from your book read oh by Gabriella uh, about something that happened at Checkers. Let's take a listen. In the grounds down below, the party is in full swing. One of the PM's protection officers nudges his colleague in the ribs and inclines his head at an upstairs stained glass window where the imprint of a pair of pale bum cheeks is undulating against the glass for anyone to see if the guests cared to look up from their involved conversations. There we are. They well, what, what happens at Checkers stays at Checkers. Well, until it appears in the papers, out, obviously. Out, <laughs> it might turn out that's not a work of fiction at all. Yeah, that is really true. what was going on. Oh, my God. Well, that's the trouble. There's a bunch of stuff that I ended up having to delete from my final <laughs> manuscript because it ended up happening in real life. Um, so, you know, maybe I've done it again. And is this, I mean, I don't even just got this one out. Is this, is this the first of several? I hope so. I mean, it depends if anyone buys it. Well, uh, so, um, yeah, th- just a gentle prod here. Um, but, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm working on a sequel to this book now, which will bring in the other opposition parties, which is quite okay. important, so they get a little bit of uh, lampooning, a bit of action, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, and uh, so we can see where the kind of main characters progress to as well. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future ones. And get in touch with me. You can email me, matt at times.radio, with any comments or complaints. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. 
In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.